This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Growing up as a reader, I always loved novels which some, somehow took you inside a family, gave you the interior life of a family. We all have that one political unit in our lives, whether we like it or not, and that is the family. You know, an elderly person and a younger person, I always wanted to write a book that would get inside a relationship like that. And Anne Quirk, um, suffering from dementia, an elderly woman who in a sense, is losing her memory, but also gaining herself as the past re-emerges in her life. It's one of the things I noticed working with people who had Alzheimer's and various forms of dementia was that the cliche is that they lose themselves. What we sometimes forget is that they're also becoming disinhibited and finding themselves. And I wanted Anne to be rediscovering a hidden self, a hidden version of herself throughout the book. How does the past impact on the present? And is it possible to live beyond the experiences of our lives? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On this week's show, Scottish novelist Andrew O'Hagan shines a light on the nature of truth, morality and identity and the possibilities of recreating our experiences of life. And has the flood of ignorance on Islam created the powerful prejudices against it. Carol Hindebrand talks to me about Western misconceptions on Islam, a religion practised by over 1.6 billion people around the world today. This is a show about imagined reality and memory, confusion and meaning, and the immense challenges that face professional soldiers in the modern theatres of war. But first, what do Muslims believe and how does it shape their lives? Carol Hillenbrand believes no religion exists in historical vacuum and no religion is the same in every time and place. Carol Hillenbrand is one of the world's most respected scholars on the history of Islam and the Professor of Islamic History at the University of St Andrews. Carol has devoted most of her life to the study of Islam, its doctrines, its history, its culture and its many languages. Well, Carol's latest book, Islam, A New Historical Introduction, aims to counter the flood of superficial and ignorant views of the Muslim world that Carol argues dominate Western media. Islam, A New Historical Introduction, covers everything from the life of the Prophet Muhammad to the nature and structure of the Quran. There's chapters on Islamic law, Sufism, Muslim women and the West, the concept of jihad and, of course, faith. The five pillars of Islam, profession of faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting and pilgrimage. Well, over the weekend, I had the pleasure of talking with Carol about her research on Muslim doctrines and rituals. I asked Carol, has the West a distinctly simplified notion of Islam and do we need to profoundly rethink our objectivity? I'm a 
medieval Islamic historian primarily. I study uh, the Crusades from the Muslim side, and I've taught Islam as a faith over many centuries um, in my classes. And I find that the impact of media simplistic commentaries are not helpful because it's as if uh, um, it, everything is and has been as, as it is today and that uh, it's not really the way to assess a religion just by the present day in a, in a monolithic way and in a simplistic way. And what concerns me is that one billion and a half Muslims are being represented by the acts and barbarism and so on of uh, a fringe, extremely uh, fringe minority. And uh, as one would imagine, um, uh, having had almost 50 years studying Islam and being in Muslim countries, I think that I have a good right to be... Um, and saying these things in my book. Really, when you think about it, how in post 9-11 political culture, we've lost objectivity on this extraordinary culture, haven't we? I think we have. And we've also lost a sense of the overarching history of, of, of this extraordinary culture, too. And uh, we're um, assessing it on the basis of, as I've said, um, just the barbaric acts of, of, of a fringe minority, an extremely small minority at that. And we also try to uh, um, generalize about what Muslims do, what, Mus what, what Islam is. And there's so many variations in Muslim doctrines and rituals right across the world. Nobody would dream of uh, calling Christianity a, a single global phenomenon, would they? And similarly, um, Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims, they can cover a range of beliefs and practices from purely nominal attachment to that faith to being extremely devout. People put down on their census forms that they're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, and that can um, embrace a whole spectrum of attitudes and beliefs, can't it? Do you think it's fair to say, Carol, that we have in some way a simplistic view of the importance of the Quran? The Quran is um, a constant uh, comfort and manual for belief and behavior for, for all Muslims. And it creates enormous emotional impact when it's read out, beautifully read out in Arabic across the world. And Muslims are reduced to tears sometimes when they hear it. And, and, and they look there for guidance. And then they look next at the legal books if they want more details. And, and those legal books have been based on the injunctions of the Quran too. So it's, um, of course, it's a work of revelation and uh, um, some aspects of it are time-bound, just as the Old Testament and the Bible is. Some of the customs there um, in the Bible and, and mentioned in the Quran are no longer um, relevant in our present-day life. But uh, one has to push those aside and concentrate without any difficulty in the case of Muslims on the spirituality of the Quran and its powerful message that they believe came from God through the 
Prophet Muhammad. In terms of the origins of Sharia law, how has our interpretations changed? Or certainly how have Muslim, modern Muslim thinkers interpreted Islamic law? Because they're responding to very different challenges today. Aren't they just? Yes. Well, there are one or two really quite um, interesting uh, um, examples of the way in which Muslim religious scholars have adapted and tried to reinterpret the Sharia law in the modern context. For example, banking. Muslims have always been forbidden to practice usury, and the Quran says that uh, God allows trade but does not allow usury. And and Muslims, if, if they're pious Muslims following the Sharia, shouldn't deal with credit cards and credit-based economies and so on, and have nothing to do with interest in the sense of banking. Uh, And it's um, quite interesting that not only have Arab countries such as Qatar and Bahrain, but also Malaysia, they've uh, set up uh, Muslim capital markets to uh, offer their clients borrowing mechanisms and investments which comply with the Sharia. And these kind of centers are attracting both Muslim and non-Muslim customers. Also, there are quite a lot of, in a broader way, um, quite a lot of liberal, forward-thinking Muslim scholars see that the Sharia law can be worked out according to the Quran and the model conduct of the Prophet Muhammad, but also to adapt to contemporary context. I mean, how on earth uh, would uh, the um, the 7th century find Islamic bioethics as as an issue? I mean, uh, Muslim scholars are working out, like other scholars in, in different faiths, what do we think about organ transplants, human cloning, euthanasia, disability, abortion, and all that kind of thing, which uh, is inconceivable in previous generations. But they have to, they have to uh, develop um, a stance on, on these issues in order to tell the, the community at large, the Muslim community at large, how they should respond to such issues. Carol, I was very interested reading about some of the background you gave on the Prophet Muhammad. And you say Muslims do not see Muhammad objectively. They have no criticisms of their Prophet. That's that's amazing, isn't it? Well, I don't think so. I think um, he has uh, been given um, uh, an unnecessarily negative press. He is... Uh, a much venerated man, and I, I, I use the word man because he's not given divine status as Jesus is for Christians, but inevitably he is a he, he is viewed as the as the best prophet, the final prophet, the person who brought the final revelation from God of what the true religion is. It's very unfortunate that in the Middle Ages. The Western European thinkers, like Dante, for example, they really vilified the Prophet Muhammad in a most unfair way. And when one reads the hadith, that's the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, which have been faithfully recorded by his uh, um, contemporaries, 
and, and, and also by scholars over the centuries. And when one reads his canonical biography, he um, comes across as an extraordinarily humane and exceptionally charismatic person. I yes. loved reading about um, the origins of Sufism. And yes. you show that the influence of Syrian monasticism and how, if we look at Sufi traditions, you know, meditation, abstinence, self-control, mm. there are relationships to Christian approaches, aren't there? Certainly. And I've taught Sufism for over 30 years. And what I do in my first class is to tell the students, write down what you think Islam is about. So they they write down um, things like it's a very legal-based religion and very strict rules and so on. And uh, I say, well, um, now let's uh, read some poetry. And I give them a mystical poet uh, to read, a, a poem from a Christian writer, a Christian mystic and a Jewish mystic, and a Muslim Sufi. And I say, which of these do you think is, is a Muslim writer? And they can't tell the difference. Because I, I think that um, mysticism is uh, a, a path to God which um, is in all the major world religions. And, and Sufism is a very powerful dimension to Islam right across the world, especially perhaps in the countries that are less well-known um, the, the Muslim countries such as Indonesia and Africa it's um, and North Africa. This Sufi dimension, yes, of course, it has similarities in its uh, outward uh, appearance in, uh, with Christianity. For example, the clothing that's worn by the Sufis in, in the early days, they, they put on woolen garments, and that's where the word Sufi comes from because Suf is Arabic for wool. They they um, re- retired to the Syrian desert and put themselves through a series of really very hard um, practices and so on. But um, Sufism then develops its own special doctrines with its own special symbols, which are not the same as uh, as Christianity or even Jewish mysticism. But then there are other similarities. For example. The Sufis are very interested in the symbol of light. And there again, Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he's called um, in in certain um, circles. And uh, similarly, the light of of God's truth, his spirituality, is a very important symbol in, uh, in, in Sufism. And there's some very fine writings by Sufi writers over the centuries. For example, by Jalal ad-Din Rumi, who's now, apparently anyway, a best-selling poet in America. What about Al-Ghazali? Because his book, The Deliverer from Error, is a landmark book in terms of Sufi traditions, in terms how it advocates for the Sufi way. So I'm just wondering, are these 12th century mystics still read? Um, Al-Ghazali is certainly a landmark figure. He's particularly popular in the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, and also in Malaysia. And I think um, his uh, spiritual autobiography was a turning point because what he was trying to do, whilst avoiding the extremities of some Sufis who abandoned the whole framework of the Sharia, and said, you know, we don't need to bother with all this uh, outward display of uh, worshipping 
of God, what we, we do it our way. In fact, um, Al-Ghazali was trying to embed moderate Sufi practice within the clear framework of the Sharia. So in a way, he was, he, he was uh, intensifying the, the spiritual side of the, the Islamic faith, but always keeping within the boundaries of, of the Sharia, which was a very important thing to him. Islam is a, is a law-based religion, but it has so much more to it in, in the form of, uh, of spirituality, which I think has been overlooked by people who don't know about Islam and, and who tend to sort of just brand it as um, uh, an extreme, extremely legalistic faith, which it is not. The Western media has always linked women in Islam in some way to abusive practices. But the interesting